everyone, and welcome to Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. My guest today on Attendance Bias is Las Vegas meteorologist and host of the Fish Recaps podcast, as well as a co-host of the Deeper Listening podcast, Justin Bruce. Justin chose to discuss the Fish show from July 7th, 2000 at the Star Lake Amphitheater in Burgettstown, PA. It seems that in the years since COVID became a national and a worldwide crisis, everyone started a podcast, myself included. And Fish fans, it makes sense that we would be no different. After listening to and ranking every show from the late 1.0 era of Fish on Twitter, Justin Bruce decided to launch a podcast based on the same premise. But instead of 180 character summaries, Fish Recaps, one of Justin's podcasts, polishes each show from 1999 and 2000 down to an approximately 15-minute recap. As you've all heard me say on this podcast, I am not very well versed in that era of the band, so when I heard Fish Recaps, I was immediately interested to have Justin come on the show. And boy, was I blown away. I thought I could hang with the best of them when talking fish, but Justin's knowledge of fish in 1999 and 2000 is on a completely other level. Citing specific shows, jams, and even segments of a tour, it was just a matter of time in our conversation before I sat back and I just let him teach me. So make sure you have your best versions of God of Jabu ready. Stop halfway between Erie and Pittsburgh as we join Justin Bruce to talk about July 7th, 2000 at the Star Lake Amphitheater in Burgettstown, Pennsylvania. Let's meet today's guest. Justin Bruce, thank you for being on Attendance Bias. Brian, thanks for having me. It is great to be a part of this wonderful podcast. Thank you. I'm very excited to have you here as we continue our journey into late 1.0 fish. You picked a show from the summer tour of 2000. That would be July 7th, 2000 at the Star Lake Amphitheater in Burgettstown, Pennsylvania. Yeah, that was my first, second fish show. And uh, yeah, you, you go with what you know, which is I wish I could pick a 1991 show, but I was 10 then. So I didn't see too many shows on that tour. I had to go with late 1.0. And that leads right into the second part of what we're going to talk about today is your two podcasts, including Fish Recaps, which covers exclusively this late 1.0 era of 99 and 2000. Yeah, look behind the curtains. I randomly decided in January of 2019 that my first show was Star Lake Amphitheater in 1999. Uh, my second show was the one we're going to talk about today, 7-7-2000, again at Star Lake. But even though I had listened to shows from 99 and 2000, I realized I had only listened to a handful of shows from those years just over and over and over again. So I decided I'm going to listen to every show from 99 and 2000 and I'm going to you know, connect some dots and kind of see what I think about late 1.0 fish because I liked what I knew, but it turns out I didn't know a lot of what was out there. So I understand that you're originally from Louisiana, moved to Pennsylvania, and then you said you have family stretched to Virginia and up to Boston. And now you're in Las Vegas. How did you end up in the Southwest? Yeah, I'm the black sheep of the family who's a couple <laughs> thousand miles west. I, because of my job as a meteorologist, ended up living in Nashville, Tennessee for 12 or 13 years and I met my wife, Jamie. We were both working at a TV station there. She more or less is from Las Vegas. So we would visit here a lot. I was very familiar with the desert Southwest. And when we had a family, started a family, uh, we realized that not having anyone in Nashville to babysit and just to spend time with was kind of a bummer. Her family, her parents and her brother and his family are all in Las Vegas. So an opportunity came up and decided to trade tornadoes for 115 <laughs> degree heat in the summertime. So yeah, we're hanging out here in the desert and just crossing our fingers that every other year we get a Halloween run from fish at MGM Grand. Yeah, that's actually a pretty fortuitous move in retrospect, moving to Las Vegas. I have not been out there for fish yet. And I would I recommend it. Want to. It's so much fun. And it's funny because for me, those are now hometown shows. I caught uh, the first two nights of Halloween 2016. I was actually here on my interview. So we didn't live here yet, but we we're visiting family. I had to go back to Nashville for work. So I missed 
the second two nights, including the actual Bowie performance. But then in 2018, we were here. It's a 10 to 15 minute drive from my garage to the parking garage at MGM Grand. A very good friend of mine runs a bar that's just right down the hallway in MGM from the arena. So it was perfect, perfect sort of hometown show setup. Although I will have to say, I had to leave uh, the Halloween night, the Kasvat Voxed night, a couple songs uh, before the show ended. I saw the Halloween set, but uh, I, because I had to come home, shower, and then turn around and go to work because it was like one in the morning and I was coming up on when I needed to be at work early in the morning. So it was definitely a, a hometown show with work obligations. So you work for KTNV Action News, which is an affiliate of ABC. Yeah, we're the ABC station in Las Vegas, and I do the morning weather, which means I get up at like 2 in the morning, and I'm at work from 3 a.m. to to noon, but I do get to listen to a lot of music early in the day as I'm getting ready for the newscast. So before you were going into into Nashville and Las Vegas, how did Fish first enter your life between Pennsylvania and Vegas? Where does Fish come in? They came to me in high school. I uh, remember. Remember in the mid '90s, uh, a friend had a portable CDR drive, and I borrowed it from the friend, and then borrowed a whole bunch of CD booklets from other friends. And basically, it was time for me to beef up my music collection because it was all about physical media back then. The music you listened to was the the CDs that you owned. In my case, in the mid '90s, and I just happened to borrow and copy a live one from a friend who owned the album, but wasn't even that into fish, uh, at least not as deeply as I quickly got into fish, but fell in love with the live one. I remember listening to it on headphones as I would study for European history, junior year of high school. <laughs> so it was like 97, but hours and hours and hours I spent with just that one album. We had a neighbor who was also our dentist and I was dog sitting and I was like, ah, oh, Dr. Lou loves music. Let me go through his collection and plucked Harvest Moon. Uh, and I think I might've even have copied Billy Breathes from my dentist in the mid nineties. So I was just taking it wherever I could get it. But for me, Fish was an early to mid part of high school introduction. I never really had like a shaman or, uh, you know, a guide to Fish. It wasn't my counselor, you know, in summer camp. I didn't have any older siblings. I didn't have any friends who were really into Fish. So I was kind of forging my own path. And for that reason, it was a lot of a live one and a lot of the studio albums that I could get my hand on. So Lawn Boy and... Uh, Hoist was a big one for me. Uh, Junta, I loved and I still love. And Billy Breeze, I think, was the one that I copied from my dentist, Dr. Lou. So I was just an equal opportunity uh, stealer of Fish's music. Apologies, Fish. I feel like I've made up for it in ticket sales since then, though. But do you remember what it was on a live one? Like, was there a song that great? Was it just everything? No, it wasn't. It was the cheering before bouncing around the room. Just goosebumps every single time, even now. Uh, it was uh, the fiery nature of Chalk Dust Torture. It was Stash, specifically when that tension is released right around, I think it's like uh, 11 minutes and five seconds. It would give me goosebumps over and over and over and over again. It was the first seven minutes to you enjoy myself. The best music I literally had ever heard. It was the end of Slave to the Traffic Light, it was the Harry Hood peak. Tell you what it wasn't, though, was the uh, Yem vocal jam. And it yeah, also... Same, same. It also wasn't uh, the tweezer. I would always muscle my way through the tweezer, but as a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, just getting into fish, I feel like 25 or 30 minutes in, it was like, huh, all right, this is, uh, this is a lot to handle. After you've absorbed your... I would say limited supply, right? Because not everything was instantly available at the time. What was, you mentioned your first show was at Burgettstown, right? About a year before the one we're talking about today. That was on July 21st, 99. What do you remember? What are your most, your sharpest memories from your first show? I remember being really excited to finally get to see Fish because I already knew they were my favorite band and I had been listening to them a lot for the last couple of years. That said, I believe at that time I was listening to a lot of slip stitch and, and pass a lot of a live one. I don't know if I recognize more than a handful of the songs that I heard at my first live show, but I will say that that star Lake show, which was uh, one of the fish recap episodes that I did 
It is so, so, so good. And one of the underrated gems from summer 99. And as we talk about my second show, also at Star Lake the next year, 772000 in detail coming up here, I can make a couple of comparisons to the year before. But I remember just being floored by Shakedown. I had no idea that that was going to be a thing. So for my recently high school graduated 18-year-old self in that stretch of 99, I was kind of floored by that. I just remember being so impressed that there were so many people there. Because if you go to a regular quote-unquote concert, you're going to have a mix of people who are sort of into it, not into it, there for a date. It's shocked me that everyone who was at this fish show seemed 100% committed to what was happening up on stage. I felt like I was just doing my part to keep up with everyone else. You mentioned that that show that I think the 99, your first show, is covered on fish recaps. So let's talk a little a little bit about fish recaps. So it's a at the time that we're recording this, it's a fairly recently released podcast, right? And the concept, as I understand it, is you take shows from late 1.0, exclusively, I think, 99 and 2000 so far, and you boil it down to somewhere between a 15 and 20 minute recap. Is it based on your personal experience or more of an objective, uh, just uh, overview of the show? More objective because I only saw one show in 99. I only saw two shows in 2000. So it would be a pretty brief podcast if I was only going on personal experience. But one thing that I learned listening and reviewing on Twitter, all of the shows from 99 and 2000, I think it ended up being like 113 shows total, was that I just let my ears be my guide. And if I heard something that I thought was cool, I would try to focus in on it. If I heard a melody or a theme that I thought I had heard before, I would stop uh, and go back and try to investigate that. And I would never look at reviews of shows until after I was done and had kind of made my own opinions. So the project was to listen to all of the 99 and 2000 shows. And I wrote a lot of notes down, did a little bit of ranking just based on what I liked the most and thought was the most interesting. So now I feel like I have all this material And when I was tweeting reviews of these shows, it's fun to talk about the music, but writing in in the written word, like how music makes you feel or how it sounds can be a bit of a challenge. And I thought this could be a cool opportunity to turn these show reviews uh, into short little podcast snippets, because then I could drop in a minute or two of some music here or there. And it's the same idea about kind of reviewing a show and mentioning, here's what moved me in this tweezer jam. Listen to this part, listen to this part without just replaying a show. That leads me into asking about your other podcast called Deeper Listening. And I listened to an episode today and you and your co-host, John, introduce yourselves as not music experts, but two middle-aged dads who like music. We're just music nerds. And John is someone that I just know from the Fish Twitter community. And we had kind of found ourselves bumping into each other in conversation online a few times and reached out to one another, especially after reviewing all of those Fish shows in 99 and 2000, thought it would be fun to turn this into a little podcast project. And uh, we agreed to do this podcast where we would just kind of do deep dives into anything that struck our fancy. Like we did in episode one, uh, all of the Pearl Jam albums uh, from 2000 forward, because like many dudes who are around the age of 40 back in the nineties, we freaking loved Pearl Jam. When I was in high school, before I really got into fish, Pearl Jam was my favorite band, but I hadn't heard anything after verses and excuse me, after Yield and after Live on Two Legs. I listened to those albums a ton, but after that, I was sort of off the wagon because I got into other things. So I had this big gaping hole of the fact that I didn't know anything about the last six studio Pearl Jam albums. So we both did a lot of listening, wrote a lot of notes, and that's the content of episode one of Deeper Listening. And what are some other bands that listeners can expect to hear about on Deeper Listening? So we're in the middle of Funkadelic, our second episode. Uh, Funkadelic, which is, everyone knows George Clinton and the P-Funk All-Stars. I knew of uh, Parliament. I had heard of Funkadelic, but I did not realize that Parliament was the funk half of George Clinton's brain and Funkadelic was the psychedelic rock half 
of George Clinton's brain. And he was incredibly prolific from 1970 forward, a couple albums a year for each band in many instances. John knew Funkadelic. He didn't know everything. I didn't. I literally had never heard a note of Funkadelic. So that was episode two. It seems like a survey course in these bands that everyone knows their names. Like you said earlier, if you mentioned George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic, and then you said, all right, name 10 songs. I'm guessing a lot of people, unless they're already in on it, probably wouldn't. Your podcast taught me a lot that now I'm even more interested to dig in. Same thing with Pearl Jam. I Their first three or four albums, I was all over all of them. And then probably similar to you, Fish entered the picture and then the rest of the world faded away for, I don't know, two decades. <laughs> and now it's time to do the catch up. Yeah, exactly. And it's just an opportunity to fill some of those gaping holes. Uh, yeah, we've got a long list of artists that we want to tackle. But for example, like St. Vincent is coming out with a new album in a couple of months. I hope... Uh, that we can do a deeper listening podcast into her. I think she already has five studio albums that have been released and I've listened to a couple of them. I certainly know some of her songs. I'm a fan of her guitar work, uh, but I have never done a deep dive into everything, but the idea is just, all right, identify an artist and spend some time listening to all of their albums. Don't read anything about it. Just listen to the music and see what you think about it. And you know, it's a very organic process and we just kind of trust our ears and it's been really fun to have someone to bounce those kind of thoughts and ideas off of and to share enthusiasm with, to be honest. And are both podcasts, Fish Recaps and Deeper Listening available wherever people get podcasts or only at certain outlets? Uh, I think, I hope everywhere, uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts, but yeah, they're, they're up there. Uh, so hopefully people will We'll give a listen, but it's been interesting. And I wanted to actually ask you a little bit more because I know you do some special episodes where you will cover like a specific jam instead of a specific show. And that doesn't seem that dissimilar from the idea of fish recaps, but it's just kind of a deeper dive into a singular jam. I actually think there's a pretty wild difference because with fish recaps, like you even said earlier, it's a more objective overview of a single show from a specific era in the band's time frame. The mini episodes of Attendance Bias, which are on every other week, the mini episodes, I don't have anyone else on, although that might change soon in the future. They're narrated. I write out a script and I pick out one song or one jam that was somehow meaningful to me throughout all of my shows. I do break down the song or the jam, but about half of the episode is also the context of where I was in my life at the time. So it's very personal as opposed to fish recaps, which is much more objective and straightforward. Your descriptions, which I really enjoy in, on fish recaps, is that they only make sense in context of the band. You know, if you're not into fish already or you're not, uh, you don't have the vocabulary for it, you know, if you mention cow funk, you know, no one is going to know what you're talking about. But what mine does is everyone has been through a breakup. And so my first mini episode was about a show in Nashville in 2015, which was my first fish show after my divorce. I think I covered the week groove from that show. I think it was August 4th, 2015. The, the angle of it was more about how that it was my first solo trip to a show. It was my first show after my divorce. And I thought the first set was good. But during that Mike's Groove in the second set, it was the return of the second jam. They did a simple fake out after Mike's song, as opposed to our show today, where there is very much a real simple in the middle of the Mike's Groove. But the Weekapaw Groove has this like Black Sabbath, heavy metal, half speed, crushing jam. And to me, it was the greatest feeling in the world because it's like fish is still there for me. I just went through this crazy traumatic event in my life. Fish was there before it and fish will now be here after it. And I'll be just as thrilled. So that's really the essence of my single breakdown, but it's only one jam or one song. Whereas you take care of a whole show. Yeah. And I think uh, that's a, a really cool idea for a podcast, especially because fish means so much to so many of us. And, you know, they've been a, a continuous presence throughout my lifetime as well from at some point in early high school when I was talking about getting into them via a live one. And now, I mean, I started when I was 
15 or 16. I'm a 40 year old father of two little kids. I'm married for 10 years. Life has had its ups and downs, but fish has definitely always been there. When was this show played? So normally at this point of the show, I give a whole breakdown of the band and the tour in which the show takes place. And when I think of 2000, I think of big, boomy recordings that have a gigantic low end, lots of chatter from the audience. You can't hear Paige almost ever. You can only hear Trey noodling when he gets in the high end. Can't even hear his uh, his rhythm. So I found myself at the time and ever since not really interested in 2000. So as you, hosting a podcast with dozens and dozens of sheets of notes about especially shows from that year. Tell me why I should be more interested in fish from 2000 and 1999. Well, I will say that I only ever listen to odds, even if soundboards are available. I just want that consistency. And the show that we're going to talk about uh, at Star Lake 7-7-2000 is at times one of those boomy, low-end audience recordings. I listened to it millions of times because it was one of my first shows. It was one of the shows that I had on CD. So uh, it was in heavy rotation. And that was also my impression of 2000. I would say uh, to put on a brave face and just <laughs> go ahead and listen to the shows because I did not really ever find that... Th- the audio fidelity was an issue to enjoying the shows. And yeah, they are Mike heavy. I mean, I think that Mike literally was heavy in the mix. And the fact that, you know, there are a lot of shows outdoors in amphitheaters taping wise, which I don't know anything about, but that does lend itself to those boomy recordings. But unless we're talking about a couple of the shows where like the weather was literally an issue, like uh, Polaris Amphitheater in 99 and 2000, most of the recordings actually sound just fine. So go ahead and dig in. And for someone who's a bit of a completionist, like if I'm going to listen to a couple of shows from 2000, I've just tell myself, might as well listen to all of them. You can have context. (laughs) I would just encourage you because summer 2000 particularly has to be the steadiest tour that Fish played in 99 as well as 2000, which I consider kind of that late 1.0 era. Sure. Unless someone saw the show in Raleigh on June 25th in 2000, which was my least favorite show from summer 2000, any other show you could pick from summer 2000 is at the very least going to be pretty solid. So you picked this one because it was your second. Let me ask you, the comparison between your first and your second, same venue, roughly a year apart. How much better prepared, quote unquote, prepared were you for this show compared to your first one? I definitely recognize more of the songs uh, because I had a year of college and high-speed internet in my dorm room (laughs) under my belt. So I had at least started to download a few shows and figure that out. And again, I didn't have someone to show me the way or get me jump-started. So I was just kind of blindly figuring things out on my own. Uh, But I was a bit more prepared. It's funny when I went in 99, I went with a a gaggle of high school friends who said, yeah, that sounds fun. Even though I don't think that they were anything more than very, very casual fans of fish. It was just me and one other buddy who went uh, the next year in 2000, drove the three and a half hours from Harrisburg there, drove back after the show, one of my wow. more tired drives yeah. in my young life. You're planning for your future career of waking up at 1.30 <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> I knew sleep deprivation was going to be a part of my professional success at some point in time. But uh, that said, there are interesting <laughs> comparisons between 2000 and 1999 in that both second sets feature mic grooves. So I left the show thinking, oh, they must play that song a lot, I suppose. But when you start to examine the 7-7-2000 show, you realize that there are lots of gems uh, spread across both sets. So it's actually a pretty solid show, even though, admittedly, I think there are 12 other shows from Summer 2000 that are perhaps uh, better, quote unquote. It's funny that 99 and 2000 are, and I'm guilty of this, lumped together, when actually, musically speaking, they're very different stylistically. 99, I found, especially the summer was kind of bipolar in that they could play like a hurricane. They could play really fast and insane and 
wildly and all over the place, but then they could step out into these weird ethereal soundscapes. Whereas 2000, I think overall is much more laid back as a whole and maybe even a little slower, I would suggest as a whole that it's, and there's more drone jams in it compared to like the super upper fast speed summer 99. Do I have that right? Or would you correct me? I would make a few tweaks to that statement in 99, especially in the summer, it is still a lot of shreddy Trey Mm -hmm. and the all-star drummer Fishman. And they are just letting their raw talent out uh, throughout summer 99. But you are correct in that there are plenty of ethereal moments in summer 99. And then I think as they finally eye Big Cypress in Fall 99, they pivot to more of a groove-based kind of whole unit jamming. Mike leads the way in a lot of these jams. In winter 99, which is great and underrated. December 99 tour, yeah. There are lots of darker, more of those ethereal moments where patience is on display from the whole band, and you can tell that they are synced up and they are ready to play from midnight to sunrise, which Obviously, it was just a few weeks away, so that was on their mind. They're stretching things out in places where they haven't been stretched out before, but it is less of those like big time summer 99 peaks. Set one. So let's dive into today's show. July 7th, 2000 at Starlight Amphitheater in Burgettstown. They open with Chalk Does Torture. And when I listened to this, I immediately had this thought that this was this week was like the week of this show was like a mini golden age for Chalk Dust. They open with Chalk Dust. And even though you might be able to, to feel a little bit of intensity uh, and it almost feels like a loose intensity uh, as they open 7-7-2000 with Chalk Dust, it is just, uh, hey, let's get everybody amped up. It seemed very tight, though. Uh, he can't. When I say he, I mean, Trey, it like drops out around six minutes and they kind of fall apart, which is, you know, one of their improvisational tricks. There was some really good power rhythm guitar by Trey, and it's extremely tight before they drop into gumbo. Which is just incredible. Fun fact, this is the first gumbo that they played in summer 2000. The last one was in uh, set one of Fukuoka, 614-2000, which everybody knows. So this was, if if we're trying to relax and lay back and start jamming deeply gumbo is a good exercise for the band to get into that sort of mindset and it accomplishes that i think early in set one you knew that this wasn't just going to be a rip through a whole bunch of you know standard set one tunes that maybe we're gonna try to go places yeah gumbo is when you could tell they really came to play there's this what I would call this electro funk. And it it reminded me because I was in 2010, I was at the Greek theater in Berkeley and that's the, that's like cities. So, right. That was the Greek cities. This gumbo, this little jam reminded me of that and that it's this whole band jamming that I can imagine the whole crowd moving as one to this. And I wish they could jam on it for 20 minutes straight. They didn't, but I wish they did.
it is one of those jams where, yeah, you wish it would go on and on and on. And Trey doesn't seem to be the star. Paige really shines. Mike is holding up the low end, but it is just one of those let's let things get a little loose and we'll see where the muse takes us. And when that's the two spot of set one, you know, who can complain? It seems like you've got a lot of potential going forward. And they started to really realize that potential next with Divided Sky, which is a huge adrenaline shot. You could hear it right away. Do you remember what it felt like when this started? I remember more so just having listened to this show after Uh the fact of being there over and over and over again. And Divided Sky, often middle of set one, you kind of know what you're going to get. I was impressed when I was listening back to this show for our podcast how peppy it is and how energetic it is. This isn't just one of those, all right, it's the middle of set one. We've got a few songs under our belt. Let's play Divided Sky. They are inspired. And Paige's piano particularly is just ringing out in the first few parts of this song. And you know that, you know, they are here on a mission and it's not just to run through divided sky. It's a pretty impressive version. And I'm biased because I was there and I've heard this a million times But for me, this is kind of my go-to stock divided sky. And Mike really stood out to me, uh, even after the the long pause, uh, like Mike is really content uh, playing pretty loudly and stepping forward. Trey is quite nimble on top of him, but I think everyone is just coasting along uh, the thick groove that Mike is playing underneath. And that really, really causes the divided sky to feel, uh, even though it's not a breakneck speed at the end of the jam, it feels very confident and to me, energetic. I think that's true throughout the whole show with Mike's assertiveness and his confidence. It becomes really apparent a little later on in the second set, I think. But I I really enjoyed that because as we talked earlier about the sound qualities of shows from the summer of 2000s of the recording, they've come a long way. I think a lot of tapers have put a lot of effort into... I don't know about remastering, but cleaning up at least what I was used to getting on a fourth generation Maxell 2S that it wasn't even worth listening to, in my opinion, at the time. But Mike is really crisp and clear in this recording, especially on the next song of Boogie On Reggae Woman. Yeah, and to me, Boogie On and the song after that, Funky Bitch, those are songs that kind of highlight Mike. So the idea that Mike was feeling it at the end of Divided Sky, and then they kind of rolled right into Boogie On and Funky, uh, that makes sense to me. And these are songs that... If I see them on a set list, I think, all right, okay, we're kind of <laughs> not going through the motions, but you know exactly what you're going to get. Whereas when you are listening blindly, which is something I like to do if I haven't heard a show before, I'll just not listen, not look at the set list, but just listen and try to be surprised as if you were there at a show in person. Uh, but they're energetic in the moment and they certainly kind of keep the crowd engaged and yeah, no complaints uh, about this boogie on uh, funky combination just because it does really keep the energy going. And then the big highlight of the set, if you ask me, the big highlight of the set was the next setup of Maze into Shafty, back into Maze, a real Shafty sandwich. So good. So So good. good. It's And I didn't know what I was uh, being treated to as, I guess, a 19-year-old in the summer of 2000. Uh, I suppose that's... Story of the Ghost had come out, so I should have known what Shafty was, and maybe I did, but this is a song uh, with the segue. It's one of those segues where you can see it coming from a while away, but they patiently approach it, uh, and as a result, it's just thoroughly rewarding to your ears as Mike signals for Shafty kind of early on uh, in in the Maze Jam, and, and then Trey... Uh, says, okay, yeah, let's do that. And they actually go into it. It's stretched out over perhaps about a minute's time.
it's so satisfying. And Shafty is one of those songs. This is the earworm from this entire show for me. I've sung the terrible <laughs> thing about hell is that when you're there, you can't even tell. People give fish flack for their lyrics sometimes, but the music here and what they're saying is just such a potent combination to me that it's yeah so, so good. And the fact that it's happening in set one yeah. just kind of elevates the game here. And again, in summer 2000, yeah, they were on their game. I think perhaps there were sometimes questions of, okay, what are we going to creatively aim ourselves toward in 2000? Uh, and then, of course, you know, in fall, they announced that they're going to take a break. So there were those creative questions, uh, but they are just, you know, enjoying the descent down the mountain that is peaked by Big Cypress. And in summer 2000, they are still fully in command of all of uh, their faculties. And they can do things like this, just kind of seemingly on a whim sometimes. They move on to back on the train, which I still think is getting its legs. It had been around for about a year. And we were still a long way from, I don't know, the version in in, uh, 2.0, for example, uh, the the one at the Nassau Coliseum on February 28th, which is probably the best version, at least best type one version ever. Uh, A year before, there was an incredible version in Oswego. But I still think back on the train was like, this version is only five minutes. And so I think it was still not quite a time filler, but like a first set special. It's one of those uh, sort of set one songs where, yeah, you know, it's not going to get wild or go anywhere different. But that groove, uh, particularly with Fishman and Trey playing atop of him, it's almost like uh, calisthenics for perhaps setting up <laughs> like a jam that's going to go deep in a funky rhythmic way later on. It's, it's like batting practice, to use a yep. baseball analogy. Then they move on to a really what I think is a special surprise. They play the curtain, which is usually, and this could be just based on my perception of the shows I've been to. I always think it's played toward the beginning of shows, the curtain. It either, you know, like first, second or third song of a set list. And we're almost at the end of this set. So it's almost like a refresher. You know, it's like that midday espresso shot just to keep you going throughout. I am a big fan of. I'm sure you are. (laughs) Well, we're talking about caffeine. And it's funny because just a few shows later at Deer Creek, they would bust out the curtain with for the first time since 1988. So it's one of those kick yourself moments where it's like, oh, I was only one show off. And as someone who's listened to this a million times, it's a really good version. It's swirling and Paige is is really out playing uh, nicely. So everyone's kind of taking a turn shining here in set one. And it segues beautifully into character zero, which you don't get to say that often because character zero usually begins from nothing. You know, that opening riff that Trey plays, it's usually... Uh, not contrived, but it it starts of its own volition. This was like a true segue and it's a great headbanger. It might be Fish's best other than maybe 46 days, but it's a great set closer and it really puts a good bow on a very strong first set. It is one of those songs where I'm never super excited when it starts, but I'm always, always bobbing my head and thrashing my head by the end of Character Zero. And it's funny, this is only my second show. Uh, And so this was my first Character Zero. Uh, I would see Character Zero again at my third show, my fourth show, and my fifth show. So I was beginning to think early in my fish career, holy smokes, do they play this song at the end of every set? Because that's what it felt like. But it did work here. And you're right. They played right from the curtain into character zero. So they uh, were hitting backstage with some momentum. Set two. The first thing I noticed about set two, before I even pressed play to listen to it, is that the whole set is just an hour and nine minutes. And I think people who weren't around for 1.0 or maybe even 2.0, forget how wildly varied the set times could be. So this set is a short second set, which is unusual because the second set is usually longer. But this is, you know, pacing was a lot more difficult back then for fans. And it's interesting because we'll end up talking in set two here about a Mike's groove to finish back Mm -hmm. in 1999 at Star Lake, 
which was my first show, uh, almost all of set two is a Mike's groove with lots of really interesting meat in the middle in the form of a really, really good my left toe uh, that segues into a jam. And again, I love that show so much. I made it one of my fish recaps, episode 721.99. But you're right. They weren't necessarily beholden to playing a certain length of time. And it also, I think, because Star Lake was usually kind of uh, after the midway point of a tour, but before the last handful of dates. So it's like they're in the thick of things and they're just, you know, going from town to town. So maybe they weren't necessarily feeling the pressure to, oh, we got to play for 70 minutes. The second set opens with Ghost. And I thought, here's 2000. Open the second set with a 17 and a half minute Ghost right off the bat. And this is where that idea of the show being laid back and smooth, even more so than current versions of Ghost, which can also tend to be much, you know, very tight. And I hesitate to use the word uneventful, but they can be in 3.0. But this is like, there's a whole roller coaster on this ghost. There's a whole journey out to be there. So what did you think of this one? I thought you're exactly right. It was kind of laid back. They're not in a big rush. And it is nice to put Ghost in a little bit of perspective because other than Birds of a Feather in summer 99, Ghost was the jam of summer 99. And I think the four times they played it in summer 99 are all fantastic. Uh, Ghost was an important jam vehicle in fall 99. Mike would lead them into kind of a groovy full band jam more often than not. Uh, Then you don't get a lot of ghost in winter 99, uh, but then pivot into 2000. And we have that Radio City ghost that I mentioned from 522, literally the only re-listenable highlight from three shows worth of material. Sorry, everybody. (laughs) Uh, In Japan, they play a killer ghost on June 15th, which is right after Fukuoka. And I think that's the last show of that tour, but a really great ghost that's upbeat, kind of hose, uh, really peppy groove. Uh, They played one on July 1st, 2000 in Hartford, uh, which was fast. And they contrast that here uh, less than a week later on 7-7 outside of Pittsburgh with this laid back groove and no one's in a hurry to do anything. Uh, But the fact that uh, it's nice and slow and they kind of lean into Mike's uh, side of things as the jam emerges kind of to me says we're confident we'll see what happens who knows we're not in a rush this doesn't have to be a blistering tray and fishman challenge between our skill set let's just lay into this deep groove and see where it goes and it goes into some really cool full band places you're absolutely right that tray and fishman kind of take a break i think this is another time where fishman it's not exactly the same but almost like maze and uh shafty it's it, he keeps a similar beat for about 17 and a half minutes. It's not identical throughout the whole thing. He does add some flair and some spice and flavor, but it's for all intents and purposes, it's very steady. And Mike is the one, like you said, once the jam begins, he starts playing this cool riff and then Trey follows Mike. It's not the other way around, which it usually is. Trey locks in on Mike's riff. And after about a minute of doing it, My favorite thing is that it's indiscernible. You can't tell who's playing what anymore. And that's kind of my favorite fish. I don't go nuts for guitar pyrotechnics all the time. I would much rather have full band jamming and kind of lose myself or let my ear wander from instrument to instrument without any one taking over as much fun as that can be. And this ghost was kind of the apex of that jamming style.
agree more. And yeah, that democratic jamming style where any of uh, the, you know, three guys, Trey, Mike, or Paige could be melodically leading the charge uh, is, I just love that openness. Uh, And that is, I think, something that you see a lot in Summer 99, where, as I've mentioned a few times, it's just a Trey fireworks fest. Yes. Uh, it's something that in 2000, they would get away from. And he certainly still had the skill set to be able to do that. But it was more of a democratic full band idea of jamming. And I think that that is uh, really, really cool. And you mentioned uh, Mike sort of throwing ideas out there that then get picked up by other members of the band. 100% agree. And if that's an idea that appeals to your listeners. You know, there are lots of the big jams of fall 99 uh, that follow that mold where Mike is the one kind of leading the charge initially. And it's just, uh, uh, it makes sense if you're going to have a full band conversation and everyone's going to be involved that it's going to perhaps originate from what's happening on the low end. And then they can build on top of that. And it is the kind of music where uh, if perhaps, you know, you're just playing it from your phone or you're playing it kind of quietly, um, you know, you're not really blaring the fish jams where it can be a little bit muddled, particularly with some of the audience tapes. But if you are listening to this at the right volume and focusing on the music when they're in these four-way conversations, I mean, it's, it's like listening to, to a great jazz quartet to it me. Is. The ideas that are being passed back and forth are just so interesting to follow along with. And you don't have to have that deep musical knowledge to appreciate it. You just have to pay attention with your ears. And they ended around 17 minutes. They, Like you said, a little after 15 minutes, I think almost like, like one by one, almost like when they're playing the end of um, the squirming coil, when one of them stops and leaves the stage, another member stops and leaves the stage. They were kind of doing that, except just with their instruments. They were each backing off, except Fishman, who just kept playing. <laughs> like they, they, you know, they all found their exit ramp, except for Fishman. And then Trey just kind of comes back in with God of Jabu, like what I think today might be called a ripcord. But I mean, Ghost was over anyway. Yeah. And after 17 minutes, you know, I think they're ready to try something else, or at least Trey was ready to try something yeah. else. And I actually kind of forgot because they played a lot of Gata Jabu in 2000 and they would play it to start set two often. Not that it was trying to be forced into being a jam vehicle, but it's almost like they would hit that groove early in set two and then maybe borrow that idea or that vibe in a different song later in the set. So it's interesting here uh, that it is after a big jam, but Jabu was definitely uh, being played every second, third, fourth show uh, throughout late 1.0. And that's something I had forgotten. And I wondered, why do I love Jabu so much? And then I heard it again <laughs> in this show and I was like, oh yeah, because I've heard it a million times. That's why version therapy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And especially after, you know, uh, the ghost, which is a, a, a little dark and, you know, uh, that, that deep funk, uh, Jabu, the notes ringing out kind of a little more clearly. It's, it, it is kind of a palate cleanser to the yeah. ghost jam. And then after the life raft in the middle of ex- the ocean of experimentation, we jump right back off and split open and melt. And we, you and I, according to our notes, have kind of differing views of split open and melt. I don't care too much for it. I'll go to the bathroom during split open and melt. Um, I like it when it gets very intense toward the end, but kind of everything up to the jam, I could take it or leave, leave it. Uh, it's been pretty inconsistent, at least of late in, you know, in, current 3.0 and then but for this one this didn't even really become interesting to me until about 10 and a half minutes in i feel like you had a completely different view of it i enjoy split open and melt a lot my major critique in late 1.0 is when a set perhaps hasn't really been adventurous and we play split open and melt to wrap a set just because we're trying to make hay somewhere when split open and melt is tasked with saving a set. Uh, and like one example of that is, uh, 12, 17, 99 in Hampton, just a, I believe that's a second set, just uninspired. I mean, it's not that they're not trying, but it's just, we haven't done a lot of notable things. Uh, and then when split open and melt is the last song, it's like, all right, well, I, you know, I understand what we're trying to trying to do here, 
but it's almost like a, a gaiuti to me. It's like, you know mm-hmm. what you're going to get. It's going to be intense if other things have already happened or if we're setting the stage for things that are going to happen a little later. Uh, a gaiuti is fine with me. A split open amount is fine with me. But when it's going to kind of be the highlight, good luck. But here, to me, right. uh, they've already made uh, a lot of hay in the ghost. So split open and melt doesn't have that tall order in front of it. And I just think this is one of the more intense split open and melts uh, from late one point. Oh, not that it's super long. Maybe it's attendance bias, which is why your podcast name is so genius. But <laughs> this is an intense split open and melt. And Trey is just unrelenting. Uh, with what he is doing to our ears out in the audience, particularly between like nine minutes and 12 minutes. just not letting up and he's just leaning into that tension and I'm sure frying a lot of minds. I was 19 at the time, very well-behaved young man out on the lawn. I think I was fine, but I could imagine other people had a much more challenging experience here in this part of set two. And for the necessary chill out after those minds were fried, there is rogue, which is, I thought it was balletic. That was the only word I could think of. Very dreamy. It was a perfect setless choice. Really nailed the flow of the set before they kind of round third base and they bring it home for the fourth quarter. As I mix up my sports metaphors entirely with a Mike's groove of a very typical Late 1.0, Mike's simple week of pog. But it works great because we finally are just going to get kind of an energetic expression uh, in Mike's and the simple is nice, but particularly in the week of pog groove. It's energy and spades. And then again, it, sometimes it's the contrast between heavy and light uh, that paint such a beautiful picture. They get into this simple uh, and it does end up getting into that ethereal territory and it's yeah it's it's just a a great one-two combination and as page kind of takes over toward the end of simple reminding me again of the squirming coil fishman comes in with his weak apog drum beat and it sounded like he's revving up yeah he it, it started very soft and it's getting very loud and about two and a half minutes in like you're already at 100 miles per hour the speed of this weak apog is blistering 100% agree. I remember when I was listening to this show for the first time in probably 15 years when I was going through all the 99 and 2000 shows, I remember where I was driving home from work because I thought to myself, holy moly, what is going on with this week of pog? I don't know if I've ever heard one that is this fast. And I would say confidently without actually having any proof that this has got to be one of the fastest week of pogs, at least from 99 and 2000, because they are trucking along at not 70 miles per hour, but like 92 miles per hour and are definitely going to get pulled over if they drive by the cops here. Fishman is (laughs) off to the races. So it almost is like the band is thinking, all right, how can we keep things engaging? I mean, they're playing not standard versions of everything, but nothing is insanely off of the deep end here. But it is that contrast, which they did throughout set one and set two, that is really keeping the audience engaged and keeping everyone energized. I mean, you can think about this band playing to 17 or 23,000 or whatever the capacity is at Starlake, and that's got to be not an easy way to keep the crowd engaged, but a, a reliable way to keep the crowd engaged just through this expert song selection. And talking about reliable, their encore is Frankenstein, probably the most recognizable riff 
arguably one of the most recognizable riffs in the classic rock canon. And so I can't imagine anyone leaving not happy with a Frankenstein encore. And uh, my first show at Starlake in 99, the encore was Bold as Love. And even as a total noob, I thought leaving the venue, that was incredible. Like really great way to finish things. Thought the exact same thing here in 2000, leaving just thrashing my head during Frankenstein. And, you know, it's perhaps not the song that you would pick, but kind of like character zero at the end of a set, they start and you think, all right, but by the time they finish, you're a hundred percent committed uh, to what they're doing. And you're having the time of your life in those couple of minutes. So Justin Bruce, thank you again for coming on to attendance bias to talk about July 7th, 2000 at Burgettstown Star Lake Amphitheater. Remind us again about your podcasts and where we could find them plural. That's how cool of a guy I am. There is Fish Recaps, which you can find Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you do your podcasting. Uh, And Fish Recaps is just me turning all of those 113 Twitter thread show reviews into (laughs) kind of a fun, listenable 15 to 25 minutes uh, where, you know, I try to break down the essence of like, why is 12, 15, 99 a great show? Uh, And then there is the Deeper Listening Podcast with my Twitter buddy, John Prue, where we will try to take varied deep dives into any band that strikes our fancy, whether that's Pearl Jam or Funkadelic. And I'm excited to do more of this music nerdery uh, going forward. I really appreciate coming on your podcast. It's a heck of a fun time. I love your enthusiasm. I love how polished uh, your podcast is. And it's always a blast to hear a fish show that maybe you're not super familiar with, but through the lens that you take where it's a show that means something to someone is really cool. So thanks for what you do. Attendance bias fact check. So Justin definitely knows his stuff about 1999 and 2000 fish. So you would think that we wouldn't need a fact check for today's episode, but after I re-listened to it, there were a few things that I want to at least clear up. So first, Justin mentioned that his first show was at Star Lake Amphitheater in 1999 on July 21st of that year. He said a lot about that show, but I was surprised he didn't mention a very notable part of it. That show contained the debut and to date the only performance of Pavement's Gold Sounds. He also brought up that the second set was mostly a Mike's groove, which is true. It contained Mike's song, Into Simple, Into My Left Toe, Into Prince Caspian, and closed out with Weekapog Groove. When talking about The Curtain, Justin said that a few shows after this one, at Deer Creek, the band would play The Curtain With for the first time since 1988. The dates on those shows are that The Curtain With was last played on July 29th, 1988 at the Roma during the band's fabled Colorado 88 tour, and then they brought it back, Justin was right, at Deer Creek on July 12th, 2000. During our conversation about set two, Justin said that the band played Gotta Jabu, quote, a lot in 2000. After checking the stats, the official Jabu count for the calendar year of 2000 was 20 times in 52 shows, not counting promotion done for Farmhouse. And for the record, the capacity at Starlake Amphitheater is 23,000, including 16,000 for the lawn. And that's it for today's episode of Attendance Bias. I'd like to thank Justin Bruce of the Deeper Listening Podcast and the Fish Recaps Podcast for joining me today. I'd like to thank Fish.net for all the information that we need and Fish.in, Fishin', for a great sounding recording. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show by leaving a rating and a review of the show on your favorite podcast app. Also, please find Attendance Bias on Twitter and Instagram. You can reach out to me for a free sticker. Spread the word about the show. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias. Bye.